Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 93. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They make electrolyte products that you can match to your individual sweat sodium concentration and sweat rate to make it really easy for you to select the right strength of electrolyte supplement, whether you want uh, the weaker, the weak or the moderate or the high sodium concentration uh, supplement, Precision Hydration has created uh, a free online sweat test that is a simple quiz uh, that you can answer. It contains questions like how much you feel subjectively that you sweat, how salty you feel that your sweat is based on a number of factors and so on. And that uh, test has been validated against actual uh, sweat test data with medical grade equipment so it'll give you a good ballpark number for how much sweat you lose and then you can match that information to what uh, supplements you choose to use and that is of course going to be especially important in hotter and longer races where you will be losing a lot of sweat and losing a lot of sodium through that in particular, if you are a salty sweater, then replacing some of the sodium that you lose is uh, go- potentially going to be critical. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And again, check them out on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roca that you can find on roca.com. Roca are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And in the wetsuit department in particular, I have been enjoying doing quite a bit of open water swimming recently. And uh, the Maverick X2 is uh, the flagship model, and that is uh, an absolutely amazing wetsuit. But also the newly released uh, Maverick MX, the Max Buoyancy wetsuit, which is uh, a more affordable a wetsuit so more applicable for perhaps newer athletes and also because it provides such great buoyancy the most buoyant wetsuit that roca has ever made and you can really feel it in that wetsuit uh, so uh, that, that is something that i would highly recommend for uh, beginners and perhaps even intermediate athletes that don't want to uh, spend uh, the most amount of uh, money possible on the best wetsuit the maverick mx is a really really good option for for you uh, so check that out and check out the other Roka products, of course, if you're looking for something else like uh, triathlon suits or even prescription glasses and eyeglasses. And you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code that you'll get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now on to today's questions, which are from Alex in Sydney, Australia. Uh, Alex writes, hi, Michael. Uh, thanks for all you do for the triathlon community with this podcast. I have a question about uh, muscle damage and recovery. My understanding of building muscle strength is that fibers are continually damaged during training and repaired in between training sessions. The body compensates for this uh, continuous damage by repairing the muscle so that it's stronger than before. For a triathlete training 9 sessions per week, it seems like there is barely time for muscles to fully recover. My question is, what is the impact uh, of training with already damaged muscle fibers and how can athletes best guard against these impacts as a couple of follow-up questions uh, if you have time one what impact does a hard bike session have on running muscle fibers and vice versa two are there best practices as for how an athlete should space out their hard sessions in swimming biking and running to allow for optimum muscle recovery many thanks in advance alex 
All right, thank you, Alex, for your question. This took me down quite the rabbit hole of reading tons of research paper about uh, about muscle damage and recovery, and in particular as it pertains to endurance sports, because that is uh, somewhat different to when we're talking about people that are working out at the gym. So uh, let's, but let's start with one of your follow-up questions. Actually, I want to start there with the uh, practical applications. So your question about whether there are best practices for how an athlete should space out the hard sessions in swimming, biking, and running to allow for optimum muscle recovery. Uh, If we first start with some main considerations, I would say that the, the most important thing is build up the total training load gradually and also build up your really demanding sessions gradually. Don't go from a longest run of one hour to a longest run of two hours just in in one go gradually build it up with uh, maybe 15 minute increments or even less so you could go from one hour to one hour 15 one hour 15 to one hour 30 Uh, definitely not any bigger jumps than that for example training at an overall load that is within your ability is really the number one factor when it comes to muscle recovery for endurance athletes and uh, in terms of how to structure the microcycle or the training week, which is often our microcycle, uh, that is really far secondary to just managing that overall training load. And through gradually increasing the demands of your individual sessions as well, so for example, that long run example, through that you will build up tolerance towards muscle damage and uh, you won't incur a dramatic mus- muscle damage because you have through the previous sessions already built up some tolerance and because you're not taking drastic jumps in the damaging cure you're actually protecting yourself and we'll get to that a bit later and this by the way is particularly important when we're talking about eccentric loading so this occurs in running and in strength training and what that means is that it's particularly important in running and in strength training to be gradual in your build-up of training and really don't uh, avoid all sudden increases in volume or intensity. And uh, that is uh, something that is uh, slightly different or just more important. Uh, The damage can be more exacerbated in these disciplines compared to swimming and cycling, which uh, have uh, just concentric contractions. Within running and strength training, it also, for this very same reason, becomes more important, in my opinion at least, to spread out the hard days more evenly within that specific discipline or those specific disciplines because the risk again is bigger you can incur more muscle damage with the eccentric contractions in terms of strength training uh, although there are different arguments for different approaches here my general recommendation is to not place it the day before a high intensity workout of any discipline Although it can be possible, so here's a caveat immediately, once you have adapted to your strength training program, it can absolutely be done because the idea then would be that you don't really incur much muscle damage, not to the extent that it will significantly hamper performance in the high-intensity workout the next day. But uh, just to be on the safe side, I always prefer to prescribe strength training, uh, and we're talking about lifting weights here specifically, in the evening after a hard workout earlier that day and then make the next day completely endurance focused. So even if you were to have a bit of muscle damage going into that day, 
you wouldn't necessarily have much impaired performance because you don't need to be at the top of your game for that endurance focused day and then the day after you should be back to normal because definitely you really really want to avoid having strength training cause muscle damage that lasts anymore that you can feel any more than than one day the second day you should definitely be back to normal otherwise you need to take a bit of a step step back and and reduce your your volume there is a useful uh, kind of uh, mental model uh, and that I like to use and think about in my coaching, and that is to place the highest intensity when the athlete is the freshest. That means, for example, if you're planning, planning to do VO2 max intervals, so zone 5 intervals, or even something like sprint interval training or similar, then you should place those when you are actually quite fresh. Then something slightly less intense, but still intense, like threshold training, that can be done even if you are still in the recovery phase from a previous workout, but uh, you shouldn't be too knocked out from, from previous work. Tempo work can be done under even slightly more fatigue and muscle damage than threshold work because it's uh, still less intensity. And uh, that's not to say, obviously, that you should always be knackered when you do your tempo work and your VO2 max intervals, you will always be 100% fresh and tapered going into it. Obviously, that's not going to happen. And uh, it's obviously good if it can be reasonably fresh for all your key workouts. But as a mental model, I think that uh, that sort of gives you the hierarchy of how to plan for when you might be more fatigued and less fatigued and how you place your harder session in relation to that expected uh, up and down in fatigue level. In terms of how to structure the microcycle, which for most of us probably is the training week, there are of course many different approaches and uh, there's not one right or wrong answer and the first one and probably the most evident one that uh, i'm going to mention is the spread out your hard workouts very evenly approach and that means exactly what it sounds like let's say that you have uh, four of those nine sessions that you do are hard or moderately hard then just spread them out maybe on on alternating days so monday wednesday friday and sunday you would have a hard session and you had have endurance days or easy days in between. And uh, the benefits of this approach is that you will avoid spikes in training stress even on a day-to-day basis. It will be similar to some other approaches that we'll mention later in terms of on a more chronic level, on a, when you look at your training stress on a weekly level, it will be similar, but, uh, but this will be very even, even if you consider it from a day-to-day basis which can be an advantage, definitely. And uh, a good, fairly widespread rule of thumb that comes to mind here that follows this approach in terms of running as a single sport would be that uh, after a tempo or a threshold workout or even a long run, whether it's just endurance or has some uh, harder stuff in it, you would allow for 48 hours of recovery before you do another harder workout. And after something like a VO2 max intro workout, then you would allow for 72 hours before the next workout. And that basically ends up meaning if you plan out a running program following that principle, that you spread out your hard workouts evenly across the week and across the weeks and uh, the micro and meso cycles. And I would agree absolutely that this is a good rule of thumb, uh, a great starting point for runners if we're talking about cycling and swimming, then 
I wouldn't necessarily see the need to discriminate between the VO2 max controls and the tempo threshold. They could basically all be treated as equally weighted hard sessions and spread out evenly, perhaps just allowing for 48 hours before the next hard workout. But that's just my opinion, not uh, the same kind of strong rule of thumb that, uh, that you see in terms of this particular running heuristic. The other... Uh, other approach, the second approach in terms of uh, how to structure the microcycles is the uh, the approach of stacking your hard days. And this means, let's say you have the same four hard workouts in the week, then perhaps you want to give yourself a bit more, another an additional rest day or an additional easy or endurance day. Then maybe on one day, uh, you actually do two hard workouts or one hard and one moderately hard workout. So this might mean doing a moderately hard swim in the morning or a hard swim in the morning and a moderately hard bike in the afternoon or evening. And that simply means that you will have one additional day in this example of just pure endurance or easy training. And the benefits of this approach is that for some athletes, getting that additional day that is free from intense training or moderately hard training can be beneficial both physically and mentally. I think that quite fit athletes are generally more than capable of doing two hard workouts on one day. And for them, especially this method can be beneficial because then they just get in as the second hard workout of the day before they even get into the window where it feels like they get hit a bit by the effects of the first one. So, but then when you get hit by the, the effects of that first workout, you're actually already in your recovery phase or, and you just have some endurance work to do the following day. So you have additional time to recover for your next hard day or hard workout. And uh, also, I don't think that we should underestimate the importance of the mental recovery here, because for some uh, fit athletes that train a lot, you might have the potential of doing something that is at least moderately hard uh, on quite a few of your training days. As a triathlete, that's just, uh, that's just a fact of life. And when you look at a lot of triathlon programs, that's the way they work. So that additional day off from hard training or moderately hard training by stacking workouts and doing two of them on the same day and then at just dedicating the following day to an easy or endurance day, that can be as important from the mental side and the mental recovery side as the physical one. I would say that one potential downside of this approach is that in terms of fueling and especially for fit athletes that burn through a lot of calories in their training, this means that you will really have to stay on top of your nutrition and your workout fueling to not run yourself too low of energy and muscle glycogen uh, and then eventually not be able to perform in your workouts so that's that's a downside and that's something you will have to account for basically if you're going to stack workouts like this and that is obviously easier to handle to manage if you are spreading out your hard workouts evenly, because then you can have a more even uh, nutrition and energy intake as well. The third approach that I want to mention is the sort of flexible approach where you just simply within the microcycle, within the training week, you adjust when you do which workout based on things like your muscle soreness, your fatigue, your heart rate variability, your sleep on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, that is something that we've seen in research. We've seen the concept of heart rate variability guided training, where athletes use their heart rate variability on the day to decide whether they should do intensity or not. And it has been shown to work 
pretty well. Uh, there's still, of course, room to do more research in that realm, I feel, but uh, definitely the initial research is very promising. And I would just add to that that I wouldn't put all my eggs in the HRV basket, but actually include things like your general fatigue, your subjective level of fatigue, muscle soreness, and sleep, which can be quantitative and qualitative. So based on that, if you know that this week you're going to do two intral workouts and two tempo or threshold workouts, then on a day when you wake up and your HRV is tanked and your fatigue is high, then don't do any of those. Just take that as an endurance day. But on a day when you have all those green lights popping, then even if you did something hard the following day, maybe this is the time to still do another intense session because you have the green lights. I would say that it probably makes sense to work with a coach uh, to help guide you through the decision-making if you are going to follow this flexible approach because it's very easy to just let it get out of hand. And uh, so this is a more advanced approach, I would say, and working with a coach would be recommended. To give you an example of what uh, a microcycle or a training week might look like, and uh, this is uh, one that I personally uh, prescribe a lot with some variations, is the 3-1-2-1 concept. Meaning simply three days that are moderately hard or hard, followed by, by one easy day, followed by two days that are moderately hard or hard, and one easy day again. And the block of three hard workouts or moderately hard workouts, or sorry, days, starts on Tuesday, so it runs Tuesday, Thursday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then we have Friday as an easy day, that's 3-1. Then we have two moderately hard or hard days again, Saturday, Sunday, and then we have one easy day again, which is Monday. And this might mean doing a hard swim on Tuesday, a hard run on Thursday, and a hard bike ride on Saturday, for example. And that hard bike ride on Saturday can often be combined with a long ride. And then depending on how much you train, you'll just fill out the schedule with with endurance-based workouts and moderate intensity workouts as well. And maybe some additional hard workouts, depending on, again, how much you train, how much hard training you can handle, where you are in the season, and so on. So as an example of adapting this schedule to the individual, if you are somebody who can handle a very high training load and you have a strong training base, then each of those Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday days might have a hard session and an endurance-based session. Or maybe one or two of those days has two hard or one hard and one moderately hard session. But on the other hand, somebody with a lower training load and or lower base fitness and or lower recoverability, uh, for them it might look like a hard workout on Tuesday, endurance day on Wednesday, moderate workout on Thursday and uh, that's the same block it's still the same three days of hard to moderately hard training load but it just looks very different so it's all relative to the individual Uh, that's very important to remember and in terms of strength training in this type of uh, microcycle that could ideally be set for the days before the easy days Uh, so the thursday and the sunday there are other options as well but that would be a great way to do it and Again, I would set those strength sessions for the evening so that you have done your endurance training before that already. So that would be just a summary of my practical advice. And actually, I realized that this was already pretty long. Uh, So uh, let's see how long this Q&A will end up becoming. 
But uh, let's move into uh, the next follow-up question and then we go into the, the big part of this Q&A. The, the other follow-up question that you had was what impact does a hard bike session have on your running muscle fibers and vice versa? Well, the muscles are essentially the same. Of course, there are different activation patterns. There are different sort of proportions of how much you use your quads and your hamstrings and so on. But still, you're using your legs. It's the same muscles. And this essentially means that a hard running session will have more impact on the bike than vice versa. Because the run is an ex- a sport with eccentric contractions and eccentric contractions uh, cause more muscle damage than uh, just concentric contractions that you have in cycling. And we'll go to the theory behind this very soon. So the practical answer is a hard run the day after a hard bike is more likely to be successful than a hard bike the day after a hard run, all else being equal. But that being said, I've seen that sporting background seems to have a big influence here. So for a very good and experienced runner, the opposite might even be true, despite whatever theory is saying that it could be that it's the complete opposite for somebody who is a very good runner and has a lot of miles in their legs and a lot of experience. That would be the exception to the rule, but uh, you could be the exception. So never rule out that, that potential. Now let's get into more of the general theory behind muscle damage and recovery. And this is where I dove into a lot of research. So uh, yeah, let's get ready for a deep dive. But uh, before that, uh, it's important to note that in the discussion that follows, when we are talking about muscle damage and what the research has found, we're really talking about damage to the extent that you will experience some significant consequences. Basically, you will feel it as uh, muscle soreness, DOMS, and or you will see it as significant strength or performance decrements. So when we're talking about muscle damage in this context, we're not referring to the muscle damage that you might or might not get from just an easy bike or swim or run that doesn't really feel like anything. We're referring to what happens after you go in and lift weights in the gym and you feel sore, or you go out and run on a very hilly course. Maybe you run a half marathon on a hilly course and you feel that you're very sore the next day. And those sorts of uh, muscle damage extent is what we're really looking at here. And uh, these processes might occur to, to a small extent in easy running and cycling and swimming. They probably do. But uh, my guess, because I couldn't find any research on that really, is that this effect would be pretty negligible. So so when you're asking about the the ideal, what happens really, and like why we can train nine times per week, if that or if that's suboptimal for muscle recovery, I don't think it is. That, that's all about building up the, the gradual training load. And when you get used to a certain training load and a training stimulus, those workouts they don't really cause any significant muscle damage anymore so so that's why why you can do that and you'll just have to pay attention to when you do your when you increase your training load in total or when you increase the load of single workouts and uh, just the general effect of your hardest workouts in the week so with that said let's talk about uh, the uh, what that muscle damage really is and how it happens uh, so first, we have a model of muscle damage that uh, is based on four different stages. First, we have the initial stimulus of the damage. Then we have an autogenic process, so basically self-generated damage. 
We'll get to more details about that later. Then we have a response, which is the inflammatory and immune response to muscle damage. And finally, the regeneration phase. And throughout all of these phases, we also have reactive oxygen species. Uh, so we have free radicals that uh, are potentially causing damage or are causing damage, uh, muscle damage, in addition to the muscle damage that is caused through other processes. Uh, and this happens not necessarily in any one of those phases. So that's sort of put in parallel to the four phases mentioned before. But the first phase here, if we talk about the stimulus of muscle damage, uh, as I mentioned already, this the stimulus is usually when we're working at a higher intensity or a longer duration than that to which we are adapted. And uh, this leads to a metabolic overload or a and or a mechanical strain. Those two would be the main factors that general, generate muscle damage. And they can occur separately or simultaneously and how, what sort of muscle damage we incur and uh, how it manifests, that will really depend on what the exact nature of the activity that we do is. And this includes, for example, was it eccentric or concentric? And uh, did it involve a relatively low metabolic demand or was it a sustained, highly demanding, metabolic, metabolically demanding workout? Uh, these factors will really impact what sort of muscle damage we experience mechanical strain means or if you go a bit deeper into that as specific stimulus means simply having a high tension or tension imbalance on the muscle fibers and in particular this happens with eccentric contractions but concentric contractions as well just to a lesser extent and uh, what can happen then is that uh, it disrupts the sarcolemma which is the muscle cell membrane as well as the sarcoplasmic reticulum and myofibrillar structures. There is uh, very good evidence that, uh, as I said, eccentric muscle contractions result in greater muscle damage than uh, concentric or isometric actions, isometric being something that is static, essentially. And, uh, well, if you look at a, a squat, the, uh, the concentric contraction is when you're uh, when you're going up from the squatting position and the eccentric contraction is when you're going down uh, so eccentric means that the, the muscle lengthens and the concentric uh, means that the muscle shortens and when we look at the difference in magnitude of muscle damage which can be measured for example by strength loss uh, it has been shown uh, that uh, muscle damage and well strength loss uh, from running can be 20 to 30 percent and running obviously involves both concentric and eccentric uh, contractions and compare that 20 to 30 percent strength loss with cycling where the loss can be 10 to 15 percent for an equivalent activity then uh, that just goes to show that it can be twice as much when you have both of those types of contractions versus just a concentric one the main factors that are behind this greater effect of the eccentric contractions on muscle damage are that uh, during eccentric contractions, the muscles experience a higher peak torque and uh, also reduced motor unit activation for a given force. There are a fewer uh, motor units that uh, are activated to produce that force. So the load on each individual fiber is greater. And uh, the maximum voluntary contraction is 30% greater during an eccentric contraction than it is during a concentric contraction. So that is uh, an interesting stat to show you why the eccentric 
eccentric damage can be so much uh, so much more serious than the concentric one and if we go to the metabolic stress uh, then we have factors here that can lead to muscle damage include substrate depletion so running out of a carbohydrate in particular a calcium influx through prolonged extended exercise high temperatures and in particular high core temperature here not necessarily the environmental temperature lowered ph if you spend a long time in a in an acidic environment or your body does and insufficient mitochondrial respiration as well as oxygen free radical production so those reactive oxygen species running wild so those that was the initial stimulus phase and uh, the two reasons why muscle damage happens uh, the what happens next is the autogenic processes so this is where basically self-generated cascades happen in the muscle cell that uh, that exacerbate the damage and that the common factor without going into any great detail on this phase because that would really be going down the rabbit hole but the common factor that we see here is the loss of calcium homeostasis in the muscle fibers and uh, the exact mechanisms are not even fully understood yet but basically uh, we have seen a, an increase in the calcium content of the cell causes damage to myofilaments and uh, to for example the mitochondria and the sarcoplasmic reticulum and it also causes general edema through a cascade of events or various cascades of events and also this has been the elevated calcium concentration in the muscle cells following uh, these autogenic processes the self-generated cascades of events when we have the stimulus or stimuli that i just presented we see that there's a dis disruption to the excitation contraction coupling process and this has uh, great implications for force production and uh, neuromuscular uh, efficiency so uh, yeah that's basically it the self-generated cascades within the cells when the stimuli of muscle damage mechanical strain and metabolic stress happen we get a cascade of events leading to elevated calcium concentration which in terms leads to all sorts of damage within the cell and in the ex excitation contraction uh, coupling processes then the next step is the inflammatory and immune response to muscle damage so when we have muscle damage we get inflammation and this is basically inflammation means that there is a movement of fluid plasma proteins and uh, leukocytes into the tissue in response to that muscle damage or if you have an infection in response to the infection and uh, in as it pertains to endurance sports there's a small group of uh, cytokines uh, that are believed to be the main uh, mediators of the inflammation so if you read any research papers on recovery you will see these uh, cited quite often as markers of inflammation uh, you have uh, interleukin 1 2 and 6 il1 2 and 6 uh, you have uh, tnf alpha and uh, yeah, interferon is uh, another one that you will also see and uh, the inflammatory response is followed by leukocytes so they perform a wide range of function these include several different types of particles and uh, during the inflammatory response they attack and break down debris and then they remove that debris and uh, start to also play a role actually in the next stage which is the regeneration of cells and uh, yeah that brings us nicely to the regeneration phase and there's not that much to say about that phase 
mostly because I don't know that much about this phase and I couldn't find uh, a lot of information about it. But uh, it seems to involve uh, infiltration by macrophages and uh, they seem to be playing a role in uh, getting satellite cells around the muscle cells to proliferate and uh, regenerate the, the muscle fibers. And uh, a great summary of these four phases and uh, just the detailed description of all of these four phases uh, is included in one of the papers that I'll link to, which is called Exercise-Induced Muscle Damage and the Potential Protective Role of Estrogen. And figure one is a great figure that where you can overview these phases and how all of these things play a role. And you can read through the entire part one of that paper and, and basically get all the details that I left out. But uh, let's move into the perhaps more interesting aspects, which is the effects of muscle damage. And uh, for this one, uh, I relied quite heavily on uh, one particular paper, which was really great, even if a bit old. It's called Muscle Function After Exercise-Induced Muscle Damage, Consideration for Athletic Performance in Children and Adults. And uh, it's from 2003, so it's not from the Stone Age, but it's not exactly new either. Anyhow, the first thing I want to mention here in terms of the effects is that there seems to be a partially selective recruitment and damage of type 2 fibers, so the fast twitch fibers. So this leads to reduced maximal force and uh, reduced, uh, reduced performance in particular at high power outputs or high intensities. Uh, but uh, interestingly, it also leads to uh, lower fatigability uh, especially at high power, power output. So for example, when we have a repeated sprint test, we will see that the drop-off from the first sprint to the last will be smaller when we have incurred muscle damage. But uh, a large part of that explanation is simply because the first sprint is so much uh, lower in power than the, uh, than the last one, than, than it was before the muscle damage, sorry. And therefore there is less of a drop compared to when we did it without the muscle damage. So, but that's an interesting effect, the partial selection and recruitment in terms of damage of type 2 fibers. Then we have uh, large endurance performance impacts at submaximal intensities. There are lot, lots of papers that have included these, including some of the ones that I will link to. But just in summary, at submaximal intensities, we see things like increased heart rate, increased RER, so uh, an increased reliance on carbohydrate or fats at submaximal intensities increased lactate concentrations, increased rating of perceived exertion, increased ventilatory rate, increased core temperature, and uh, impaired running and, or exercise economy when we do something after having incurred muscle damage compared to in a non-muscle damaged state. These are all sub-maximal intensities, and uh, the literature seems fairly consistent on uh, on all of these, they they each each of the studies that I've seen show uh, at least a few of these. So so that's quite quite significant. Then an interesting aspect that I did not know was that we see a reduced resting muscle glycogen when we have incurred muscle damage. And again, this particularly affects the type two fibers. So that's very interesting that to know that uh, if you go so hard that you actually feel that well you incurred some muscle damage then you should also be aware that maybe that negatively affected your muscle glycogen stores so pay attention to that in terms of how you plan your training going forward and also your nutrition then the next uh, effect that i want to mention is a reduction in neuromuscular efficiency 
This simply means that we need a greater central activation, so a nervous system uh, stimulation simply or a signal from the nervous system to achieve a given submaximal or maximal force. And uh, this, in- interestingly, one study reported that this impairment in neuromuscular efficiency outlasted many other symptoms of damage so it might be one of the last ones to go away and uh, what implications this may have difficult to say really Uh, i don't know that there's any conclusive evidence but potentially you could uh, consider that it might have some sort of impact on uh, central fatigue and uh, rating of perceived exertion going up because you have to be so focused and have a high cognitive demand to uh, to really be able to exert the same submaximal or maximal forces your brain is basically working harder or central nervous system is anyway there are also negative impacts on motor skills and proprioception which also is very interesting and uh, gives you another reason to avoid this really serious muscle damage because then even if you have planned an easy swim for the next day you might not get the most out of that swim because of compromised proprioception compared to if you didn't incur that muscle damage and potentially even if that muscle damage is not in your upper body but in your lower body so that's uh, something that uh, just popped up as a thought in my head at least and uh, well it's i think it's been pretty clear already my recommendation is to try to do the best you can to plan your training so you avoid this kind of muscle damage in the first place and uh, that's really what the main gist of this is all about but uh, if it happens it's still interesting to know what what the potential consequences are and uh, finally uh, again going back to a little bit more of the geeky stuff if you're interested in things like the force velocity relationships and the torque angle relationships of uh, of human muscle fibers there's a shift to the right in terms of the optimal angle for strength and uh, which means basically there's a disproportionate loss of strength at short muscle lengths so when uh, fully contracted and uh, this means for example when when your joints are flexed essentially for example let's imagine you're sitting against a wall doing the old quad uh, isometric strength training with a 90 degree angle the knee is flexed your strength will be disproportionately affected at this position compared to when your knee is extended there's also possibly a greater strength reduction at high angular velocities so for example high high cadence but these findings are a bit uh, contradictory to each other so it's not really clear but uh, some interesting research on, on that and there may be something to that so so interesting to consider as as a potential effect and but when we compare isometric strength with concentric strength and eccentric strength at uh, one and the same angular velocity there's really no difference in the magnitude of strength loss uh, or the rate of recovery for those different types of contractions so uh, so those would be some of the more geek stuff in terms of the the effect of the muscle fiber on on different types of strengths at different uh, different muscle lengths and joint angles and angular velocities so next on my list of things to cover is how can we quantify muscle damage and uh, really it's quite simple we have measures of muscle muscle function uh, such as strength or power they can both be used as indicator of the magnitude of muscle damage and the time course of muscle damage 
and uh, we can use this in isometric or dynamic testing conditions. Generally, the research shows that uh, after incurring severe muscle damage, like you would when you go to the gym and do something that is way too hard for you, uh, your uh, the muscle damage may last for one to seven days, and uh, the magnitude uh, would be between as low as five to ten percent in some cases. Those might be the more concentric uh, stimuli versus 60% in all depending on what you do obviously and how heavy the stimulus is but uh, 60% strength loss that's that's big that's going from a let's say you do a 100 kg squat as your maximum and you have that as your maximum and suddenly the next day you're down to 40 kg as your absolute maximum so big 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 impact on muscle function then there are important markers of muscle damage that are used as well, and these include the disruption of the sarcolemma, the muscle cell membrane, and the extracellular matrix. Uh, you also have increased blood levels, and these are often used in studies of creatine kinase or myoglobin, and uh, then in addition to that you have things like stiffness and swelling. Uh, apologize for the car honking its horn there. Uh, don't know what's going on exactly might keep doing it it's been doing it for a while anyway moving on to the time course in a little bit more detail so the, the effects of the different mechanical and metabolic uh, stimuli stimuli for damage uh, do not necessarily occur at, in, in perfect parallel at the same time so the time course is very difficult to predict it depends on what the stimulus for muscle damage is when we're talking about proper DOMS inducing damage, as seen in most of the studies that look that I have looked at, because they really that's how they do the studies, then it's common to measure performance change and markers of muscle damage 48 hours after the damage inducing event. That's a very something that you'll see very typically, and uh, more often than not, almost every single time you will see that 48 hours after the uh, initial stimulus you have quite often some significant damage and almost every single time you have at least some damage. But again, keep in mind here that the damage-inducing event here has been quite significant in those studies. You were talking about things like 100 drop jumps or something, something to that extent, something that you wouldn't normally do. I don't really think there's any very clearly demonstrated science about the time course of recovery, but from my interpretation of it, if you experience significant muscle damage, so let's say that you feel significant DOMS, then expect it to take three to seven days to fully recover. That doesn't mean, of course, that you can't train for three to seven days, but your training may be slightly compromised. And again, this is just another example of showing how important it is in the first place to avoid uh, incurring that severe muscle damage. And one thing that I want to add that was quite interesting the time course of recovery does depend on which muscles we're talking about. So the knee and ankle extensors, for example, they demonstrate strength loss that it strength loss that is usually much less, around 35%, and with faster recovery between four to seven days than the elbow flexors. And one study found that the elbow flexors can take many weeks to recover its full strength, which uh, is pretty crazy. And that was just one study, but pretty interesting still. And uh, apparently there is uh, such a thing as different muscles recovering at very different rates. And I think that the review that I read stated that muscles that are used 
to a much lesser extent like the elbow flexor probably experience a much lesser training load overall than the knee flexors and or knee extensors so so that would explain perhaps why this recovery is so much slower which leads ni- nicely into the next topic which is which is the repeated bout effect so i have mentioned that you need to gradually build up your training and this is the reason the repeated bout effect is one of the main reasons it's not a very complicated phenomenon it's just really common sense i would say but the magnitude of muscle damage and loss of muscle function it can be attenuated after even just one bout of eccentric exercise which could be downhill running or it could be some sort of gym exercises and uh, also this protective effect can last many months apparently it's not really fully understood why or how this the mechanisms behind this effect i should say but uh, it looks like it involves both neural and cellular and mechanical uh, mechanisms so the important implications for us as endurance athletes is again this is the argument against doing hero workouts and for consistent training within your current abilities i haven't really seen any studies on this but anecdotally i think there are plenty of arguments for for this uh, for this approach and avoiding that muscle damage in the first place and additionally in order to limit uh, the exercise induced muscle damage uh, it would make sense probably to involve actually specific deliberate exercises with eccentric contractions and that could be as part of your strength training program that would be a very good idea and something that i highly recommend but it could also be doing some specific work for example specific downhill running or just in some of your runs selecting to deliberately go and run on hilly courses and maybe push a little bit on downhills gradually step by step week by week another topic that i want to get into is the effect of gender and age on muscle damage and when we're talking about age there is an apparent decreased susceptibility to muscle damage in children and this has been explained by their better flexibility which in turn leads to a length tension curve shifted to the right and or equivalently uh, the force angle uh, curve is shifted to the right so flexibility has been suggested but just theoretically that it could be actually a protective several protective mechanisms against muscle damage this hasn't been studied in a single study it was just suggested as a potential direction for future research and in terms of gender differences this has been studied a bit more uh, estrogen has been shown to reduce creatine kinase which i as i mentioned is a marker of uh, muscle damage that is often used in studies and this has been has been led to suggestions that female muscle may sustain less damage but uh, actually later research has found that probably these findings are more indicative of simply a stabilizing effect of the muscle membrane from the estrogen but there really are no histological differences between male and female muscles following a muscle damage inducing protocol and functional measures like muscle strength and power have supported the notion that this hormone really isn't effective at minimizing muscle damage so from what we know at this point there isn't really a gender difference in terms of muscle damage uh, the age thing i should say that uh, 
if the flexibility thing is true then that might be a, a reason for especially aging athletes to include some flexibility training but again bear in mind that there's no study behind that there's just the the observation that children seems to seem to observe uh, decreased muscle damage and they also have better flexibility and the length tension curve shifted to the right in terms of what types of intervals uh, in in endurance sports uh, lead to the biggest muscle damage this has actually been studied in a study by uh, uh, Vivelhove in 2016 and they compared four by four minute intervals with uh, seven by two minute intervals with two by ten by thirty second intervals with three by nine by 15 second intervals with four by six by five second sprints and obviously the longer the interval or the, the sorry the shorter the interval the higher the intensity or and the other way around but uh, all at like a high intensity for whatever duration was they didn't use percentage of vo2 max they used percentage of an incremental fitness test as uh, prescribed by martin boucher as the the measure of intensity but it was all controlled and and a good study so they did find a main effect in the study for the acute responses of heart rate session rpe and lactate value values increasing with the longer intervals and blood ph decreasing so more acidic for the longer intervals on the other hand 24 hours after the the workout they noticed that the creatine kinase at the delayed onset muscle soreness and the decrease in counter movement jump as an uh, as a measure of muscle function were significantly uh, higher so the de- a greater decrease after the five second sprints compared to all other protocols so what these researchers researchers concluded was that longer intervals at uh, lower intensities relatively speaking compared to sprints led to higher acute cardiocircular responses but the sprinting protocols with the highest intensity induced the highest muscle damage and muscle soreness we have quite a few performance outcome studies and i will link to these in the episode description so i won't go into any detail because uh, oh dear this q a is already getting to become the longest q a that i've ever done i think but uh, in terms of repeated sprint performance i already mentioned this there was a percentage reduction in peak power output for the sprint tests of 10 to 20 percent uh, after uh, an exercise uh, a muscle damage inducing protocol that was twist 2005 twist 2008 measured a five minute cycling time trial 48 hours after 100 counter movement jumps in recreational athletes and found an 11 percent difference in average power uh, between the non-muscle damage so before and after the having done the the counter movement jump protocol so all of these uh, studies have done the uh, the test whatever they test in a fresh state and then after having done uh, a muscle damaging protocol and then usually they test 48 hours after that protocol the next study is by marcoda in 2007 and this was 100 drop jumps and then 48 hours later a 30 minute run time trial in moderately trained athletes and there was a four percent decrease in performance compared to doing it in a fresh state and uh, that seems more in line with what we would expect 11 percent i would expect i would explain that with recreationally trained athletes will lose more compared to moderately or well-trained athletes in Davis 2009, they measured cycling time to exhaustion 48 hours after doing 100 squats. 
and there was a 13% decrease, but this was again in recreationally trained athletes. Then we have BIRD 2011 that measured 15-minute cycling time trial performance, performance in recreationally active individuals 48 hours after plyometric protocol, and there was a 13% decrease in the average power and uh, yeah, then I just have a point that few studies, if any, have used highly trained athletes. And as I said, my suspicion is that you would see a performance decrement for sure, but it would be smaller, more in that region of 45%, which you saw in the Marcoda study. But that's just obviously my suspicion and gut feeling. And it would be interesting to see if somebody actually doing that study. There have also been several studies that have investigated the impact of muscle damage on running economy as opposed to direct performance measure. And it seems clear that running economy decreases after exercise-induced muscle damage. And uh, to throw a little bit of an indication of magnitude for the decrease out there, uh, it could be around 5% or even more, depending on the stimulus used for the muscle damage. There is also some evidence that uh, the impairment in economy may be bigger at higher intensities so the higher you go the more you suffer and i'll link to a review article that summarizes a lot of studies that have investigated economy the review article is called exercise induced muscle damage and running economy in humans and uh, one more thing or two more things one interesting little tidbit that i found interesting was in that paper that i just mentioned uh, the myth of the recovery run so to say a study by Chen and colleagues analyzed the effect of 30-minute daily runs performed at different intensities, 40% of VO2 max or 50 or 60 or 70, on the recovery of muscle damage and running economy after a muscle damage-inducing protocol. And they also had a control group that didn't do any of these 30-minute recovery runs. Uh, muscle damage was induced by downhill running, so 30 minutes of downhill running at 70% of VO2 max with a minus 10% slope. So that's pretty interesting. And the, the researchers found that the time course of recovery of muscle damage and markers and of running economy was similar for all groups, regardless of whether they did any running or not, and regardless of the intensity between 40% and 70% of VO2 max. So low to moderate intensity running does not seem to improve the recovery from muscle damage and or the recovery of running economy. And uh, this has some important implications because you will hear the term recovery run thrown around a lot. And uh, uh, I used to talk about it myself not that long ago, but uh, I've def updated my terminology a while back and uh, never talk about recovery runs or rides anymore. Or I try to avoid that anyway. And instead, I use the terms easy run or easy ride. And on very rare occasions, I would use very easy run or very easy ride, but never recovery run or ride because recovery just doesn't happen when we're training as much as you would like to think that it does. And that's it really for all of this. Uh, this was a lot of jibber-jabber, a lot of geeking out. But I hope that uh, some of you enjoyed it and those that didn't turned off after I... Uh, switch gears from the practical application to the more theoretical aspects of muscle recovery uh, some more things to note uh, the main thing here if we summarize it is the gradual buildup of training load avoid sudden increases in training stress and uh, both volume and intensity and do that both on an acute acute and a chronic level so don't go from a five-hour training week to a 10-hour training week 
don't go from a one hour long run to a two hour long run both of those levels the chronic and the acute need to be gradual and uh, spread out your hard runs and strength workouts in particular because those will cause the most muscle damage because of the eccentric muscle contractions however there's nothing stopping you from doing something hard or moderately hard the day after another hard workout as long as you can perform and you don't dig yourself into a hole i think that as much as we talked here about muscle damage you can feel it yourself if you feel sore if you have muscle soreness then you have some sort of muscle damage if you don't feel anything and you perform well then you're good to go so i think that we shouldn't really overanalyze it but if you are consistently running into a hole or basically just getting into a place where you have muscle soreness that lasts like any longer than you want maybe that could even be just a day i don't think that you should have significant muscle soreness even for a day necessarily during the large part of your training year but uh, basically just adjust training accordingly to to optimize for avoiding that muscle damage in the first place that's the big take-home message for today and that's it thank you so much alex for your question uh, it must have been a good one because i talked for so long about it <laughs> so uh, keep sending in questions to michael scientific triathlon.com and that's michael with a k and uh, go to scientific triathlon.com if you're interested in training plans and uh, coaching and products and products and services like that to help you improve your training finally big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for next race and use the promo code that triathlon show 15 to get 15 percent off your order and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com Go and check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.